uh, Acts chapter 21, starting with verse 17. I'm going to read all the way through Acts chapter 22, verse 29. And it reads, When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God, and they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law, and they have been told that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to, their cust- to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus, all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you, are, uh, you yourself also live in observance of the law. But for, as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men and the next day he purified them, or I'm sorry, himself along with them and went into the temple giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, but they, and they, oppo- they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all uh, Jerusalem was in conflu- confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of of the people followed, crying out, away with him. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian that then, uh, who who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people, and that when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet, and he said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, 
according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women. As the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness, from them I received letters to the brothers and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one, Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me, standing by me, and said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour, I received my sight and I saw him. And he said, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of whom you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him standing to, uh, saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord... They themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. And when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who was a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and, asked, and said to him, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said, said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, Yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, But I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. We'll stop there, and we're going to ask God for his help as we get into his word. Please, please pray with me. Father, we thank you, Lord, for this word. We thank you for this testimony of Paul. God, we ask that as we study this text, that you will speak through me to your people. Help me to speak not my own ideas, but your word. I pray that your people here in this room would have hearts and ears and eyes that receive it. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. 
You may be seated. I want to speak to you on this passage under the title, In the Refiner's Fire. In the Refiner's Fire. A preacher once admonished his church. He said, you've got the lecture, but now can you pass the lab? He explained that when he was a boy in science class, there would always be two parts. The lecture, which would tell you what was inside of the frog, and then would come the lab, in which you would open the frog up and see what was inside of the frog. Every Sunday morning, you get the lecture. And as soon as the lecture is open, the lab begins. You see, it's during the lecture that we are told what God has done for you and in your soul. The lab begins as soon as the sermon is over and the suffering begins. The challenges begin. You lose your job. Somebody has a problem with you. You have to pay your rent. Persecution comes. Your friends don't care about your faith. Your family makes a mockery of your faith. And it's during this lab experience that you are opened up and you see what has happened in your soul. Or to put it another way, the way that Peter put it, we are in the refiner's fire. Peter says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, may, uh, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. When the refiner's fire comes and you find yourself in that lab of your spiritual life, will your faith prove to be gold? You've got the lecture, but will you pass the lab? You know, for some, the pandemic has been a lab for their spiritual life. For many, as a result of the disconnection that so many of us have uh, uh, had to experience, for some, for many, there's been a drifting as a result of this refiner's fire. The world will always test your faith, with or without a pandemic. You know, the Bible says that the world hates Jesus, and if they hate Jesus, then they will also hate you if you are of Jesus. Other times, your suffering comes as a result of Satan's own work, as Satan seeks to destroy your faith, as Satan brings along his own temptations and challenges and problems. But then uh, even, uh, uh, even more, uh, God himself is the one who tests us. As a matter of fact, all testing comes from God. As God is seeking to refine our faith, putting us into that fire. So Paul's faith here is now in the refiner's fire. As you know who've been uh, coming to the church here and we're walking through Acts, you know that we finally get to Jerusalem. This has been Paul's trek for the last number of chapters. And as you might remember, many, if not most of his friends, if not all of his friends, were begging Paul to not go to Jerusalem because Jerusalem hates Paul. And they know that when Paul gets to Jerusalem, there is going to be excruciating suffering there. 
But Paul has made it clear that his life is worth nothing to him insofar that he might finish the race that he has been called to to run. Paul essentially has said, no matter how much suffering he will face in Jerusalem, nothing will keep him from obeying God. So he finally gets to Jerusalem, and here in verse 17, Paul receives an immediate warm welcome from the church. Pastor James is there. He's the pastor of the church in Jerusalem, and and he uh, uh, has this formal meeting for Paul, it seems. There in the meeting, Paul gives his own missionary update in verse 19. It says he related to them one by one the things that God had been doing among the Gentiles. And then James gives his own update from Jerusalem. And it's grim. It involves lies, the twisting of truth, and death plots. In verse 20 through 25, James explains that there are thousands of devout Jews in Jerusalem who basically want to kill Paul. What are they doing? They're they're sharing lies. They're twisting the truth of what's been going on. It, it, this, this passage here gives us like this eye-opening experience in which we peer into the tension that this Jerusalem church was facing. Of course, they want to reach the Jews. They want to see Jerusalem come to know Jesus. And at the same time, there is a real tension, a real challenge that they're facing, and that is this. Because of the gospel, because Jesus Christ uh, fulfilled the law, because all of the law was pointing to Christ and therefore fulfilled in Christ uh, because of uh, the fact that the temple is now uh, spiritual. The temple is Jesus and the Holy Spirit has now gone to the Gentiles and is now covering the whole globe. The problem is, is that the customs and the ceremonies are no longer as central as they used to be. As a matter of fact, they're not even required for fellowship with Jesus Christ and with his people. This presents then a missiological challenge for the church in Jerusalem. So what they're doing is is they're they're hearing these words about how Paul has uh, doesn't require, for example, Gentiles to become like Jews in order to enjoy fellowship. And the enemies in Jerusalem are twisting what he's saying And what they're actually saying is, is that Paul forsakes Moses. They're saying that Paul is telling Jews to not circumcise their kids. They're saying that Paul is telling Jews to not follow Jewish customs. These are the rumors, these are the truths that are twisted into lies. Because that's not true, is it? Yes, Paul did say that Gentiles should not have to conform, but Paul never said that Jews do not have to, or should not practice uh, their Jewish customs, or should not circumcise their children. So James then has this sort of missional strategy. He says, Paul, here's what we need to do. You need to uh, pay for these four guys to go through the ceremonial cleansing. You need to go through the ceremonial purification process yourself. And this would show the unbelieving Jews that, uh, that, that you are not opposed to Moses, that you're not opposed to following the customs of the Jews. And so Paul does that. He goes through all of this. He has no problem with that. 
And this, this, by the way, is a very helpful evangelism tool for us. This is a lesson for us to learn. Meaning, if you can set aside your freedoms for the sake of the gospel, set aside your freedoms. As an example, maybe you are free in Christ to drink a glass of wine, but you set aside that freedom as you're reaching out to a recovering alcoholic. Or maybe you're free in Christ to uh, eat pork and not wear head coverings, but you go to the Middle East and you set aside those freedoms uh, so that you might reach those in the Middle East. F.F. Bruce put it this way. He says, the truly emancipated spirit is not in bondage to its own emancipation. Meaning, Paul, being free in the gospel, in his freedom, is free to give up his freedoms for the sake of others. So Paul does that, but it's still not enough for the Jews. So at the end of the seven-day purification process, in verse 27, Paul is attacked. More lies. Verse 28, it says, This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and defiled this holy place. Well, that's not true. They saw Paul with a Greek named Trophimus, who's from Ephesus. And they assumed that he took uh, uh, Trophimus into the temple. Again, assumptions Uh, twisting of the truth, outright lies as a way to attack Paul. Now, at this point, Paul is seized, he is grabbed, and the blood and the bruises begin. While the attack begins, the Roman commander, who is called here in the text the Tribune, hears of what's going on. And so he immediately shows up with his crew, and he's trying to understand, like, who is this guy? Why are you attacking him? What, what has he done? Everybody's shouting something different. Everybody's confused. The tribune is confused. He doesn't know what's going on. And so he's like, okay, I got to get him into a quiet space. So he's taking him into the barracks. And the crowd is so violent that he literally has to be carried by soldiers to get to the barracks. They now stop on the barracks stairs. And this is where the main part of our story happens. As Paul is standing on the stairs, he asks the tribune if it's okay for him to speak. Now, as he begins to speak, he speaks Greek. And in Egypt, they speak Greek as well. And so as soon as he starts speaking, the the tribune says in verse 38, he says, are you the Egyptian that stirred up the revolt? Now, again, that's kind of weird. But what's happening here is lies. Probably, in all of the confusion, somebody yelled out from the crowd, he is the Egyptian that stirred up the revolt. Accusations. They're not true. Paul then responds and he says, no, I'm actually a Jew from Tarsus. Tarsus, uh, by the way, was a Greek city. It was, like a, a, it was Jewish, but it was the center of Greek culture. And so in Tarsus, you would learn rhetoric. You would learn Greek philosophy. And so Paul is basically saying, looking at the tribune, he's saying, I'm from Tarsus, meaning I'm not a threat to Rome. I think that's kind of what he's saying. He's also a Roman citizenship, but he holds that ace of spades for later. He says, I'm from Tarsus. And then he goes on, and he's kind of like this cultural chameleon. That's why I love Paul. He can just go from one to another. And that's what he does. He turns it to the Jews now, and he begins to speak in Hebrew. 
And he says, I'm from Tarsus, but by the way, I was raised in Jerusalem. Paul is identifying with the Jews who are accusing him. It would almost be like as if all of Baltimore was coming at you and you said, hey, I, I'm from Baltimore. You know, I, I, I love this city. I was raised in the city. I went to Douglas. I say zinc. I uh, use yo as a pronoun, you know. I'm from this, like, I love Baltimore. What, what Paul's saying is, is, I'm from Jerusalem. I love this city. I'm not against you guys. Paul is using every bit of his background to resonate with those who are accusing him. And what we see here develop pretty quickly as Paul begins to speak is that they are enemies, not of Paul, but they're actually enemies of God. And before I get into Paul's defense, let me just briefly address the enemies of, of God in the room, all right? Because I, I, just, I just assume they're here. Uh, I want to address the faithful and how we give a response, but I also recognize that there might be enemies of God. How do you know that you are an enemy of God? Well, looking at these enemies of God, let me just give you two quick tests. Number one, enemies of God cling to their old lies over the evidence. They cling to their old lies over the evidence. Just as an example from the early church, in the first days of the church, beyond the scriptures here, uh, as the church was forming, the church uh, spoke out against killing the unborn. And they were accused of early society as being haters of humanity. Uh, the church ate the body of Christ, quote-unquote, in their Lord's Supper and their worship gatherings, and they were accused of cannibalism. The church called each other brother and sister, and they were accused of incest. Don't you see how the world has always taken the truth, like something of what's actually happening in the church in your life, in your faith, and turns it and twists it into an accusation against you. Enemies of God cling to their old lies over the evidence. What was the evidence? Well, the evidence was that Paul had no problems with Jews following the customs. But the lies was that he was telling Jews not to follow the customs. What lies today do you hear about biblical Christianity? In what way today are people taking truths, things that are actually real about what we believe, or, and then turning it and twisting it into a complete lie and accusation in order to displace and discredit your message? Here's the thing. Enemies of God don't care about the truth. They don't care about your explanation. They don't care about God's explanation. Because if, if, if they hear the explanation, then they have to deal with Jesus. And if you deal with Jesus, you've got to deal with the whole of who Jesus is. And that means you need to turn and trust in Jesus. And so I would rather just cling to my old lies. As we assess ourselves, I wonder, are you an enemy of God? The second thing we see about enemies of God is that they cling to their old ways over God's revelation. They cling to their old ways more so than God's clear revelation in His Word. 
Charles Spurgeon was a preacher in London in the 1950s, 60s, and he, he was very clear against slavery in the southern states of America. 1850s, did I say 19? 1850s, you can just shout it out when I say something wrong. 1850s and 1860s, he was clear uh, about his belief that slavery in the southern states was sinful. In 1859, Charles Spurgeon was going to do a six-month tour of preaching throughout the America, Americas, throughout the, the United States. And on February 17th, 1860, Alabama churches had a big book burning of Charles Spurgeon's books. And the Alabama newspaper wrote this about Spurgeon daring to come to the southern states. They said, last Saturday we devoted to the fires a large number of copies of Spurgeon's sermons. We trust that the works of this greasy cockney vociferator, that's an interesting word, may receive the same treatment throughout the South. And if the pharisaical author should ever show himself in these parts, we trust that a stout cord may speedily find its way around his eloquent throat. What's going on there? Well, what's going on is that these people are clinging to their old ways over God's revelation. Meaning it was clear in God's revelation, a.k.a. the Bible, that their old ways were wrong. But they, they had this entire economy that was built on slavery. And so they would rather maintain and cling to their old traditions and their old ways as opposed to hearing the truth. The real issue here in Jerusalem was pride. It was the fact that they had their old ways. Our people, our place, we love these things. We want to maintain these things. We cling to these things. And now because the gospel has gone global and the Holy Spirit is not dwelling in, in houses made by human hands, uh, the, the, the Gentiles are believing. The gospel has gone to Asia. The gospel has gone to Africa. No longer are the Jews or the temple the center. And so their issue really is pride. We want to remain at the center. Now, today, I doubt many of us would agree with the old southern states on slavery. But what are your old ways that don't align with God's Word? Or, in other words, what sins have you built the entire economy of your life on? oh, I, I can't give up my old ways. I can't give up the streets. I can't give up greed. I can't give up my immorality. What are you unwilling to give up? What are you clinging to over God's clear revelation in Scripture? Now, God's revelation of what God is doing in the world is what Paul's ministry is all about. Paul in no way has diminished the people or the place. Paul has said, look, 
the, the temple is, is, is phenomenal. And I'm telling you what the, 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 what the temple actually pictures, what it moves us toward, what it proclaims, and that's Jesus himself. Israel, not just simply about this ethnic group, but rather the whole people of God that God is saving. Meaning what Paul is saying is, is that God has continued His divine revelation and the people and place have exploded into something bigger and better. But they're unwilling because they're clinging to their old ways. So what does Paul then say to the enemies of God? As they accuse him, Paul asks if he can speak to the crowd. What does he say? Well, first, he doesn't return evil for evil. He doesn't get violent. He uses words. Look at verse 27. Paul says, brothers and fathers, hear the defense. Everybody say defense. Hear the defense that I now make before you. That word defense is the Greek word apologia. Does anybody know what discipline we have named after the Greek word apologia? Somebody? Apologetics. That's the discipline of defending your faith. So here Paul is defending his faith. He makes a defense. Now, as we defend our faith, what I want to see, what I want you to see, is that Paul doesn't make a defense for God. God doesn't need you to come to his defense. When Paul defends his faith, he makes a defense for why he believes in God. He also doesn't lift up his work, he lifts up God's work. Meaning in his testimony of what, uh, why he believes in God, he doesn't talk about the great things he has done. He doesn't say, oh, I've been able to travel the world because of my Christian faith. I've been able to do all of this great stuff. I've been able to help people change their lives. I've been able to, able to uh, feed a thousand people. I've been able to help young guys get jobs. I've been able to walk out my purpose. I've been able to live, uh, live my life uh, in, a, in a better way. It's, he doesn't say any of that. In your testimonies of your own Christian faith, do you talk about what you've done? In your defense for Christianity, do you talk about all of the great things that it's turned you into? Or do you talk about what God has done? So that's what Paul does. It's not about him, but rather it's about God. It's not about his work, it's about God's work. I've outlined his, his speech into three different categories. Let me give them to you. Number one, God converts enemies into friends. Number two, God chooses enemies for friends. Number three, God commissions friends to go to enemies. Are you with me? So first, God converts enemies into friends. When I was a kid, for some reason, all the kids in my neighborhood liked to fight. And I wasn't much of a fighter. And I remember one day I walked up to one of my neighbor's house and I was trying to steal his dog because I thought he was being mean to it. And he met me in the street and was really upset and he was wanting to fight me. And so I flicked off his hat which was a stupid move. You know, in fifth grade, that's like a sign of war. And so his fists are clenched, and, and he's wanting to fight. 
And I, like, I wasn't a fighter. I'm not, I don't like to fight. And, and I was like, I was like, oh, I just came up here to see if you wanted to play football. And he's like, oh, really? I was like, yeah, I wasn't going to steal your dog. <laughs> and um, he was like, okay, well, let's, let's play football. So we, we played football and rode bikes all afternoon. <laughs> Church, turn your enemies into friends. Come on, somebody. <laughs> this is what God does. Now, the difference is this, is God uh, has no sin. God is infinitely holy. God is the innocent one. And God comes to rebels And somehow in God's crazy, extravagant grace, takes his greatest foe and turns him into a friend. And so Paul starts talking about what God has done. He, he, He begins with what his life once was. He says, I'm from here. Gamaliel was my teacher. I was taught according to the strict law, verse chapter 23. 2 verse 3. I was, I was as zealous for God as you are, verse 3. I persecuted the way, Jesus, to the death, binding and delivering Christians, verse 4. I had the high priest behind me and the whole council of elders, verse 5. But something happened. And I wonder if that's your own testimony. I once was lost. In darkest night, yet thought I knew the way, the sin that promised joy and life had led me to the grave. I had no hope that he would own a rebel to his will. But if you had not loved me first, I would refuse you still. But as I ran my hellbound race, indifferent to the cost, you looked upon my helpless state and led me to the cross. Paul's speech begins with, I was where you are, but I'm no longer there because something happened. What happened? Well, Paul was on the road to Damascus, and he saw this great light. He was blinded by the light. He heard a voice. He realizes my problem, my enemy, is not uh, uh, the Christians, but it's actually Jesus himself. Jesus himself appeared to Paul as the risen and living Savior, Lord, King. And he turned his greatest enemy into his friend. Look, church, it doesn't matter how bad you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what you've come in here with. All who are weary and heavy laden, Jesus says, I will give you rest. Have you come to Christ? Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. Hallelujah. Jesus is my life. This big truth, number one, is that God converts enemies into friends. The second one is this. It's attached to that. God chooses enemies for friends. So Jesus then instructs Paul to go to a man named Ananias. He's called another devout man according to the law. Again, he's trying to resonate with the Jews. Here's another, here's a devout Jew who believes in Jesus. He goes to Ananias, and in verse 14, Ananias says to to Paul, he says, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see his face, to hear his voice. 
meaning it's, it's all about God's work, not Paul's. Paul didn't appoint Jesus to be the Savior. Jesus appointed Paul to come to know that he is the Savior. Are you with me? In other words, Paul didn't choose Jesus. Jesus chose Paul. How do we experience this? Well, we are converted. God turns us as his once enemy into his friend. And then Ephesians 1 comes along and says, and oh, by the way, God chose you before the foundations of the earth. The result of all of this in verse 16 is that Paul is washed of his sins. He's cleansed. He calls on the name of the Lord. That is a nickname for he has faith. He puts his trust in the risen Savior who died on the cross for his sins. And this is the hope that's available to you today. Listen, your sin condemns you before God. You are the rebellious one, not the innocent one. And God is coming at you. But instead of his wrath coming at you, God comes at you with an offering of salvation. Christ has come to you. Even now, Christ comes to you. And he says, come to me, all who are weary, and I will give you rest. Jesus dies for rebels just like you. Jesus takes the wrath of God for those sinners just like you. Come to Christ now. As Paul comes to Christ, call on his name, trust in Jesus Christ, and you have the promise that your sins will be washed away. God is in the business of cleansing us of all iniquity so that we might stand as righteous before him. Paul then is baptized as a symbol of all of this. He's saved by God's grace. Paul's defense to the Jews is basically saying this. He's basically saying, look, you're getting on to me, but this is not really about me. It's about Jesus. The third big takeaway is that God then commissions his friends to go to enemies. So in verse 17 of chapter 22, if you look at it with me, it says, when I, when I had returned to Jerusalem and I was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance. And I saw him, this is Jesus, saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. Now, at this point, Paul pushes back a little bit. I, I, I've got solidarity with them. They, they know that I imprisoned Christians. They know my past. They know that I was the guy that oversaw the death of Stephen. I think what Paul is saying is, is because I have solidarity with them, they will accept the testimony that I have. They saw my transformation. They saw how I went from A to B. How could they not believe my testimony? Two more quick lessons, church. Number one, just because your old ways match their old ways, don't think that they will believe your testimony. Just because you can resonate with them, don't think that they will believe Jesus the same way you did. People won't believe just because you come from where they come from. If they ever believe, and they may, it will be because God will perform the same miracle in their life as he performed in your life. Now secondly, secondly, if they don't believe, don't dip out on Jesus to stay with them. 
don't continue in your old ways simply because they reject Jesus. Let them reject you. Stay with Jesus. And this is what happens. Jesus says, you've got to go. So he tells Paul to leave Jerusalem, and he commissions him. This is where I'm getting this commissions friends now to go to his enemies. He commissions Paul to go to the Gentiles. And that's where Paul's life has been about. Taking the gospel all around the world to the Gentiles. And now, church, Paul's missionary journeys have come to an end. Paul will spend the rest of his life fighting for his life. But he will never stop talking about Jesus. Now at this, when they hear Gentiles, that Paul was commissioned by God, again, it's not Paul that they're having problems with, it's God they're having problems with. It wasn't Paul's idea to go to the Gentiles, it was God's idea to go to the Gentiles. When they hear that, they lose it. The haters lose it. They turn violent once again. At this point, the, it's so bad that the tribune says, all right, forget this crowd. The tribune takes Paul into the barracks and he decides to try to torture some information out of him. It's an old thing called, uh, 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 what's it called? Come on, somebody, help me. It says it in the text. Flogging. Um, they're, they're trying to understand what's going on, who he is, what their problem is through flogging him. Now, this is when Paul pulls out the Roman card. And he says, hey, by the way, I'm a Roman citizen. Why does that matter? It's because Cicero said that it's an abomination to flog a Roman citizen. And so Paul is finally pulling out the Roman citizenship card. He tells the centurion. The centurion freaks out. He goes and tells the tribune. They're like, hey, we can't flog this guy. He's a Roman citizen. Hey, another quick lesson. Use whatever legal protections you have available to you in the defense of your faith, your practices, the mission of God. That's what Paul does. So he's not flogged. He stays Locked up, but at least he doesn't get whipped. And that's where the story ends. You know, these kind of passages for me are hard to preach because there are so many lessons here. But I'll just close with this. Apologetics is not defending God. Apologetics is defending why we believe in God. As we talk about why we believe in God, we're talking about our testimony. And as you talk about your testimony, you're not talking about your work. You're talking about God's work for you. As the story ends, there's this sad reality that there are thousands of residents in Jerusalem who cling to their old ways instead of receiving the hope of salvation. And now it's, it's your turn. Will you cling to your old ways, your old traditions, your old habits, instead of receiving the hope of Jesus Christ? Do you receive Jesus as your Savior? Are you willing to abandon everything else to follow after Christ? Are you willing to lose everything else, even if that means your own life, to give it all up for the sake of Christ? The lecture is easy. 
The lab is when it gets difficult. When the suffering begins, when the persecution begins, will what's inside of you be proven to be gold? To be transformed by the Holy Spirit? True faith. Genuine trust in Jesus Christ. My first year of college, I was in a tough class. I was in my first week of of being in school and I wasn't doing well with this class immediately and my older brother had been through the class and I remember going into his dorm room and saying like, this is really hard. I need help. And he kind of walked me through uh, the, the upcoming test. You know, in some ways, I feel like Paul is our older brother here who's saying, I've been through that lab. I've been through that suffering. And we're, we're looking at our old brother's testimony here, saying, God, may we pass this test with genuine faith, facing our own suffering, clinging to what God has done. Because what Paul, our older brother here, what he says to us is, it wasn't my work, it's all God's work, and that's why I cling to it. But church, Paul goes through his own suffering because there was still another older brother who faced his suffering for us. He bore that shame for the goal that was set before him, and that was our salvation. And in his suffering on the cross, Jesus Christ hanging on the cross says, it is not your work, but it is my work for you. And then rising from the dead three days later, victory over death, victory over over sin. And so we, church, cling to Christ. And that's what it looks like to go through this test. No matter what comes your way today, You cling to Christ. Why do you do it? How can you do it? It's because God converts enemies into friends. God chooses enemies for friends, and God has commissioned all of his friends now to go to his enemies. It's his work, not ours. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, that your work for us is enough. We thank you, God, that we don't muster up anything in us in order to make it through the test, but we just look back to our older brother, Jesus Christ, who suffered on our behalf, who bore the shame on our behalf for our salvation, and we cling in our faith to his work. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.